0: Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold. I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was gathering their sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty, because according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged, and he laid him down on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God! Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. Friends, again, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Those familiar words could rightly sum up the world that Elijah lived in. Elijah was a prophet who lived during the time of Israel's history called the divided kingdom. King David and King Solomon, the greatest of the kings of Israel, are 150-plus years in the past. After King Solomon died, during the reign of his son Rehoboam, the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes split apart. After the split, the divided kingdom, especially the northern king of Israel, kingdom of Israel, where our narrative happens, doesn't look much like the covenant that God had made with David. Where one of David's descendants will be on the throne ruling and reigning for eternity. Instead, the northern kingdom is marked by one bad king after the next until Israel is finally destroyed and taken into captivity in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah doesn't fare much better, having mostly bad kings, a few good kings, and even a handful of kings who were a mixture of both good and bad. The book of 1 Kings chronicles the life and reign of Solomon, the building of the temple under Solomon, the division of the kingdom under Solomon's son Rehoboam, and the sad and mind-boggling repetition of good king, bad king. So as we turn our attention to the prophet Elijah, we look to the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, one bad king after the next, with only one king in the history of Israel, Jehu, who is a mixture of both good and bad. But let's start with the best of times. King Ahab, son of King Omri, sits on the throne in the northern kingdom. 1 Kings 16.29 tells us that Ahab reigned for 22 years in Samaria, from about 875 to 853 B.C. Ahab's wife Jezebel, the daughter of Baal, king of the Sidonians, brought Israel into an alliance with Sidon, which is a coastal city-state on the Mediterranean Sea. Having a border with Sidon, this gave Israel the ability to export their goods to all parts of the world. So there was longevity and leadership. The economy was strong. So things are great, right? Wrong. Look in 1 Kings 16.30. Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord, which isn't good. But even worse, it says that he did more evil than all who were before him. 1 Kings 16.31 tells us that Ahab took the sin and wickedness of King Jeroboam to new heights. And remember, Jeroboam was the king who made Israel sin and who all kings in Israel were measured against when looking at their failures. And if that wasn't bad enough, Ahab's marriage to Jezebel, notice the name of her dad, Ath-Baal, king of Sidon, propagated and institutionalized Baal worship throughout Israel. She turned Ahab's heart away from Yahweh and toward Baal. And in 1 Kings 16.29, we're told that Ahab went and served Baal, that he worshipped him. And he went so far as to build an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria as the place of worship for all Israel. We see in 16.34 that the things had gotten so bad in Samaria that Jericho, The city which during the time of Joshua God had announced a curse on anyone who rebuilt the city was actually being rebuilt. Super not good. Israel had turned away from their covenant relationship with God and had rejected his word and installed and institutionalized Baal worship instead of worshiping God. So who was Baal and what was Baal worship like? Baal is the Canaanite storm god and the bringer of rain. He is the chief of the Canaanite pantheon. As the bringer of rain, Baal was recognized as sustaining the fertility of crops, animals, and people. Those who worshipped Baal believed that sexual acts performed in the temple would boost Baal's sexual prowess, which would contribute to his work and increase fertility in the production of the crops and the livestock and children. Temple prostitution was practiced in Baal's temple to stimulate Baal to act on behalf of his worshipers. As the storm god and bringer of rain, Baal was imagined to be the most active during the wet season. During the dry season or in times of drought, he was thought to either have been taken captive and or to have been killed by Mot, the god of death and the underworld. Baal and Mot were thought to be in conflict with each other. I'll talk briefly about later uh, about Mott later in the sermon. So Jezebel and Ahab were not merely followers of Baal. They were committed to making Baal worship a way of life in Israel. And they were just as strongly committed to stamping out Yahweh's presence within Israel. They did this by persecuting and killing those committed to Yahweh, the God of Israel, by silencing the prophets who served as God's mouthpiece and encouraging people to oppose Yahweh and engage in evil acts. 1 Kings twenty one twenty five tells us truly, there was no one like Ahab who had sold himself by doing evil in the eyes of Yahweh, whose wife Jezebel urged him on. So while things on the surface may have looked like it was the best of times, people had worked, the economy was going well, longevity and leadership, the truth is that God, his word, and his covenant had been rejected. His people had turned from him, had taken up with Baal, and were engaging in all its evil practices. This truly was the worst of times. So as we pick up in verse 1, what we, uh, what we know from the few verses at the end of 1 Kings 16 is that the situation in Israel was bad. It's here, with this background in mind, that Elijah burst on the scene unannounced, seemingly out of the blue, without any pomp or circumstance. So look with me in verses 1 through 6 of 1 Kings 17. Verse 1 begins, Elijah the Tishbite. While we often call him Elijah the prophet, I want to call him Elijah the obscure for this sermon. Before verse 1, Elijah is nowhere to be seen. In verse 1, we read that he's from Gilead, though the Hebrew doesn't make it clear whether Tishbe is the name of the village Elijah is from, or if Tishbe was a group of settlers who ended up living someplace in Gilead. We don't know the name of his father, the origin of his call, or even how long he served as a prophet. We don't even know how Elijah got an uh, an audience with King Ahab. But here's what we do know. We do know that Elijah means, my God is Jehovah. And we'll learn that he spends the majority of his prophetic life proving that his God, Yahweh, the living God, which is a swipe at Baal, who was alive sometimes and dead other times, that God is superior to Baal. Over and over in this chapter, Elijah is proving that God is superior to Baal. One of the ways God will prove he is superior to Baal is by stopping both dew and rain until Elijah decides to end the drought, which James 5.17 tells us lasted three and a half years. The implication here is that since there are a multitude of seasons when it should rain and doesn't, that Yahweh is not only alive, but controls when it rains and when it doesn't. So verse 1 already shows us that God is all-powerful, not Baal. With his declaration of drought made, Elijah listens to the word of the Lord, and verse 3 tells us he goes and hides at the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. While there, God provides for his daily needs through the water of the brook, and through the meat that the unclean, carrion-eating ravens bring him twice a day. All of this comes about because Elijah has chosen to listen to and obey the word of the Lord. But why did Elijah have to hide himself? Was Elijah afraid because Jezebel and Ahab were out to silence him, or, or even worse, to kill him? Quite possibly. But I believe that God is doing something bigger here. Elijah went and hid because his departure symbolized the departure of God's word from the life of Ahab and the entire nation of Israel. Israel had rejected God. They had silenced his word and were actively engaging in silencing the bringers of his word. And because of that, God was symbolically silencing his own voice in the midst of his people and was bringing about the punishments he promised to bring in Deuteronomy 11. And as I read, listen for the instances where God, not Baal, is the one who provides what they need so their crops and livestock produce. And while I won't be reading the entire uh, 11th, uh, 11th chapter of Deuteronomy, I'd encourage you to read it later, as it also talks about how God provides so that their children flourish too. But listen to Deuteronomy 11:13 through 17, and hear God's punishments against his people for rejecting his voice. Deuteronomy 11. Verse 13. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. God had had enough. He had enough of his words falling on deaf ears. His people had promised to follow him exclusively, yet... Here they were, outright rejecting God, shutting up their ears to his word, and following after Baal. God was done. And so Elijah, God's mouthpiece was to go and live by the brook Cherith, symbolically showing God's people that he was done and that he was not speaking to them, but he was hiding his word from them until they repented and returned to him. Friends, God sometimes still operates this way. There are times when his children reject him, refusing to listen to his word, following after other gods when God silences his voice from them. Not because he's fickle, but because he's trying to get their attention. A sort of cosmic wake-up call. He silences his word so that his children will repent and return to him, so that they come to their senses and see that God's word brings life, so they uh, return to full dependence and allegiance to him. And one more thing I want us to see about obedience to God's word bringing life. I don't know about you, but I often feel more like Elijah the Obscure than I do Elijah the Prophet. I often feel inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. Hear me when I say this. God loves to take nobodies and make something out of them. He loves to take those of obscurity to do things that make his name great. In our verses today, it's Elijah the Obscure When he obeys God's word, he finds that God provides in unimaginable ways. When we listen to God's word, we find both life and abundance. Yet this isn't prosperity gospel stuff. Verse 7 makes it clear that obeying God and his word doesn't promise a life of ease. Let's look in verses 7 through 16. The drought impacted Elijah too. As the drought wore on, verse 7 tells us, the brook that provided Elijah's water dried up. What started as a brook at some point turned into a creek, then a trickle, then a puddle, then nothing. So what's Elijah to do? He listened to and obeyed God, yet the brook still dried up. What was going on? Did God have the power to provide? Was he sovereign? Verse 8 tells us that God's word came to Elijah. In verse 9, God tells Elijah to go and dwell in the city of Zarephath, which was about seven miles south of Sidon and belonged to Sidon. This move reinforces three things to Elijah. First, God is still hiding his word from King Ahab and his people Israel due to their unrepentant hearts and evil acts. Second, God will continue speaking to Elijah and will continue providing for him. Third, God's power extends outside of Israel, even extending into the home turf of Baal himself. Elijah is sent to an unbelieving widow who God had commanded to feed Elijah. God was sending Elijah to the very heart of Baal worship to prove that yet again, God is more powerful than Baal. In fact, God is all-powerful. So Elijah goes to Zarephath, and upon entry, he encounters the unknown to him widow who is gathering sticks. He asks her to bring him some water. As she does, he asks her to bring him some bread too. It's here that Elijah learns of her situation. The drought wasn't just in Israel, but it extended to uh, to Sidon. As they talk, Elijah finds out that the widow and her son are starving to death. When he meets her, she is out gathering what she needs to make their last meal. With just enough flour and oil to make one more meal, she and her son will eat and drink their last, and die. God's benevolent providence and timing is amazing, isn't it? Notice the woman's response to Elijah's request in verse 12. As the Lord your God lives, while Baal, the rain god, whose turf was in Sidon, is currently dead or is on hiatus on his own turf. And while she hasn't placed her faith in Yahweh yet, she somehow knows that Elijah's God is alive And while the phrase is used to make an oath that she isn't lying about her situation, she seems to insinuate that because Elijah's God is alive, Yahweh has the power to intervene. And he does through Elijah. Look at verse 13. Elijah commands her to not be afraid, to finish what she's doing. And then first make Elijah's food and secondly make some for herself and her son. While Elijah's request seems startlingly selfish, his reasoning is anything but. Since Baal, the storm god and sustainer of the fertility of crops, animals, and people is unavailable, absent, or dead, Yahweh steps in to save them from death. He does this as Elijah knows that God can do anything, including providing what the woman needs to stay alive. Verse 15 tells us that as she obeyed God's word through Elijah, God provided enough flour and oil each day so that she, her son, and Elijah ate for many days. Again, God proves that he, not Baal, is the true sustainer of life. When God's word is listened to and obeyed, his people find life. He gives them what they need and what Baal is powerless to provide. Let's look at verses 17 through 24. Yet tragedy still strikes. In verse 17, after the miraculous providence of flour and oil for many days, we see that the woman's the woman's son dies of an unnamed illness. So she turns to the man of God who is living in her house to explain why her son has died. She knows that God is more powerful than Baal, but she doesn't know what he's like. Is he vindictive or capricious? Is he here today and gone tomorrow? Is he dead like Baal now too and and unable to keep her son alive. If he is truly sovereign everywhere, what happened that her son has died? She can only wonder if God has saved her son only to break her heart because of some sin she has committed. Elijah's response is beautiful. We see his humanity on full display. He doesn't seem to have an answer and shows no defensiveness in her question. Instead, he carries the son to his room and prays over him. He prays the widow's question as his own and then prays that God would bring the child's life back into him again. This prayer is bold. This account with Elijah and the boy is the first time in all of scripture that someone prays for another's life to return to them. And the Lord listens to Elijah's prayer. The life of the child returns to him and Elijah brings him to reunite with Up until now in this story, we've seen God exercising power and authority over Baal. But here in verse 22, we see God showing himself even more powerful than Mot too. Mot, the God of death, who supposedly fought with Baal for who is more powerful, is powerless against Yahweh too, as he he is unable to keep the dead boy in the ground. God is more powerful than both Baal and Mot. Before this, God showed us that his rule and reign extend over Israel and Sidon. Now he shows us that his rule and reign extends over the living and the dead, too. Repeatedly in this chapter, God is showing that he, not Baal and not Mot, is the one who is all-powerful. When God shows this by bringing her son back, notice her response. In verse 24, we see that she responds by confessing that God is both reliable and faithful. That whatever God says is true, and that whatever he says he will do, he will do. The God of Israel is now her God too. What an indictment for Ahab and Israel. While Ahab, the king of Israel, who has rejected the covenant with God and has gone after Baal, and who is suffering under a drought, is unable to hear from God and receive God's blessings, yet a lowly widow woman of a neighboring country living on the home turf of Baal, hears from God through Elijah, experiences divine blessings of life and tender care, and comes to confess that God and his word are reliable, faithful, and true. God was supposed to have the ear of the king through the prophets, and the people were to walk in relationship with him. Yet this lowly widow has a daily audience with God's mouthpiece, experiences who God is and what he does, and ultimately places her trust in this God. Really, this should be an outrage to King Ahab in Israel. It should wake them up and cause them to repent and return to the Lord. Our verses this morning don't tell us how they respond. It only tells us how she does. How great for Elijah and for this poor widow woman. Repeatedly, they get to see and experience God's supreme power and his tender care and with receptive hearts they hear from the Lord, respond with obedience to his word, and come to have deep convictions that God, not Baal, not Mot, not Ahab or Jezebel, God. God is all-powerful over all things everywhere. And if they merely walk with God in covenant faithfulness, they will flourish. So what about us? What are some of the key takeaways for us from 1 Kings 17? First. God is all-powerful. We saw God's power when he sent the drought due to Israel's sin. We saw his power when he sent ravens twice daily to provide for Elijah as he lived by the brook. We saw God's power when he orchestrated a widow in another country to feed and house Elijah while the drought continued. We saw it when God renewed the flour and oil daily in order to provide the daily bread for the widow, for her son, and Elijah. We saw his power when God brought the dead sons back to life. Yahweh, the God of Israel and the nations, is behind it all, making things happen, providing, showing tender care. God is all-powerful over Baal, over Mot, over Ahab and Jezebel, and over any other God that humanity fashions and worships. This is a good reminder to us today. God is all-powerful. He's more powerful than any God we make up today and assume has some great level of power in our lives. And while it angers God when we give that God our time, our money, and our worship, he shows us again and again that he is greater and more powerful. And that that little G God we've gone after is not only unable to give us what we long for, it also always has to bow the knee to the power and sovereignty of God we would do well to make a lifelong commitment to following the Lord and repenting and returning when we've gone after these lesser gods and giving our praise and worship to the only true God, who is truly all-powerful. Second, God calls people of obscurity to simple obedience in order to show his power. We saw this in Elijah's bursting on the scene with little fanfare and even less background information. But we saw throughout our chapter that God consistently used Elijah to show God's power through him. And again, who was this Elijah? He was obscure. James 5.17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And when he prayed fervently to the rain for the rain to stop, it stopped after three and a half years. Elijah was just like us. Just a guy who put his pants on one leg at a time like us. And the widow? She was obscure too. God used this woman from an unassuming town belonging to Sidon to welcome, house, and provide for God's mouthpiece. God still calls people of obscurity to simple obedience to show his power. Our faith in God's care for us grows as we obey his word. I often feel obscure. It's amazing to think that God wants to use people like you and me, people of obscurity, to show his power he wants to use us through our simple obedience to show his power to the world and to those around us whether you are a mouthpiece of god or a lowly widow woman listen to his voice respond in obedience and watch how god shows the world his power and his greatness pay attention to the nudges of the holy spirit pray for opportunities And pray for willingness. Obey what you already know. Love God. Love your neighbor in tangible and creative ways. Confess and forgive humbly. Do things like these and see how simple obedience leads to God showing you and others how great he is. Third, God's word brings life. The reason Elijah was sent to Ahab in the first place was because he and the nation of Israel had chosen death. Their disbelief had led to disobedience, which leads to death. Death to their covenant commitments. Death to their promise to love and serve God only. Death to anyone choosing faithfulness to Yahweh over Baal. Essentially, God was saying, you want death? You got it. But at the same time, he's telling the faithful to, who listen and obey that he will provide for them, that he will give and sustain their life. We saw that when Elijah listened to God's word and lived by the brook that had sustained him. When Elijah listened to God and went to Zarephath, the widow fed and housed him for many days. When the widow listened to Elijah doing what he asked, that not only he but also her son were given life. When the son passed away, God's act through Elijah's prayer brought the son back to life. And ultimately, as the widow experienced life with Elijah, She came to the place of confessing that God's word is truth and that truth is life. Friends, God brings life. If we will listen to and obey his word, we too will find life. Like the widow, we will find that God's word, like the God who spoke it, is faithful and true. We will do uh, well to affirm and remember, no, no, to hold on with dear life to the truth that God's word is true And wherever it is listened to and obeyed, there is life. When in the face of shifting leadership and culture's values, we choose to live and lead our families according to biblical precepts, God's word brings life. When the world around us seems to be spinning out of control and we choose to steal away to spend time in God's word, it's there that God speaks life into our situation, be it into our personal life, our family life, our vocation, our church whatever. It's as we open our lives to God's word, that that's where he pours life into us. Friends, God speaks through the written word of the Bible and through the preached word of his ordained elders. May we be a people who constantly draw near to hear God's word, knowing that God's word brings life. Lastly, as we land the plane, friends, remember this. Elijah was a human just like us. He listened to and obeyed God's word. Friends, the message this morning isn't that Elijah is so great and all we need to do is be more like him. The message is that the God Elijah served and whom we serve is so great and we need to draw near to him because he is all-powerful and he's defeated every god on their turf and he brings life from death and he speaks to those who are his and gives them life as they listen to and obey his word. Think about how these things impact the faith of a person when they choose to listen to and obey God's word. As we walk with him, we gain example after example of God's faithfulness, his providence, his power, and his tender care. What an enormous impact when we are confronted with insurmountable obstacles in life and ponder, is God more powerful than this thing I'm facing? When we ask, is he truly powerful and sovereign? It impacts us when we see leaders who chase after all sorts of gods that promise things that only God can provide. It impacts us as we engage in culture. It impacts us when we have personal needs or have a lack of resources. It impacts us and reminds us that not only does God care about those things, he also acts in such a way to provide for us what we need and that he's with us for his glory and for our good. So, when we find ourselves straying from God, which we are prone to do, and when we try to receive something that other gods from other gods and only God can provide, our best move is to repent of our sin and return to God, to draw near to God, who is all powerful, to remember that God loves to call us to simple obedience in order to show his supreme power and his tender care, and to always, always remember that God's word brings life when we listen to it and obey him. By God's grace, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, let's forsake all other gods and draw near to the one who provides for our every need, who maintains our life and has the power over every man-made God and even death itself. God is truly powerful. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you as those who are prone to wander. We're prone to seek out you in other gods, thinking that they will somehow provide for us and meet our needs even after we have professed faith in you. Jesus, would you help us? Holy Spirit, would you grow in us ever anew, a life of commitment and faithfulness to following after you each day, knowing that you are the one who is all-powerful and cares for us, provides for us, leads us, guides us, directs us, Lord, that you are the one who calls us to obedience and that you are the one that when we follow your word, you give us life. Lord, help us in that. We love you so much. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.